Well, next week is the uh, Illinois Marathon in our community, and uh, I'm just curious, how many of you are going to be doing something in that uh, next week? Wow, okay, great. We're going to have, you know, it's a, it's a 26-mile marathon, and then a half marathon, and then 5K something, and then a 1K, and there's some sort of stroller thing, and that's what I'm maybe going to go for. Someone will push me, but... Um, but you know, the marathon, a mar- you know, though a marathon's over 26 miles, the experts will tell you not to run over 20 miles in your training. So you, uh, you don't need to do the whole marathon in practice before you do it on race day. You just do, you know, just do 20 miles. You can get in 20 miles. The Kind of the idea is the, the crowd will take you the rest of the way or something like that. Which means that the last six miles are kind of no man's land. Last six miles, you don't know what you're getting yourself into. You may hit a wall, you know, the wall at 20 miles, right? Or you may get cramps, or you may not. You know, you just just know it's going to be tough. It's going to be a challenge. You hit the wall, 20 miles, last six miles. Today we're going to look at some verses that are like the last six miles of the marathon, all right? And you just know it's going to be tough. If you have your Bibles, I want you to turn to Revelation chapters 10 and 11. Revelation chapters 10 and 11. And it's on page 872 of your church Bibles. And we have been uh, spending uh, this semester just uh, studying through this last book of the New Testament. And Revelation chapters 10 and 11 kind of remind me of mile 20 of a marathon. We know it's going to be hard, and so we know we need to prepare. It's going to be hard. We need to prepare. And we prepare by resting in, we prepare by resting in the fact that God is sovereign, and whatever happens to us is part of his plan. We prepare by trusting that God has created even the difficult opportunities. Let me repeat that. That God has, God has created even the difficult opportunities so that we can bear witness, so that we can be light in a dark world. We prepare by learning to endure hardship We prepare by learning to endure the little hardships so that when the big hardship comes, then we don't fall by the wayside. And we also prepare by refusing to believe the lie that the things of this world are the most important things. That's how we prepare. And we prepare by praying each day for God's strength to face whatever the last six miles hold for us, okay? So so let's read Revelation chapter 10, thinking about these things. Revelation chapter 10, the Apostle John writes, Then I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven. He was robed in a cloud with a rainbow above his head, His face was like the sun. His legs were like fiery pillars. He was holding a little scroll which lay open in his hand. 
He planted his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land. And he gave a loud shout like the roar of a lion. When he shouted, the voices of the seven thunders spoke. And when the seven thunders spoke, I was about to write, but I heard a voice from heaven say, seal up what the seven thunders have said and do not write it down. Then the angel I had seen standing on the sea and on the land raised his right hand to heaven and he swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created the heavens and all that is in them, the earth and all that is in it, and the sea and all that is in it, and said, there will be no more delay. But in the days when the seventh angel is about to sound his trumpet, the mystery of God will be accomplished just as he announced to his servants, the prophets. Then the voice that I had heard from heaven spoke to me once more, go and take the scroll that lies open in the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea and on the land. So I went to the angel and asked him to give me the little scroll. And he said to me, Take it and eat it. It will turn your stomach sour, but in your mouth it will be as sweet as honey. I took the little scroll from the angel's hand and ate it. It tasted as sweet as honey in my mouth, but when I had eaten it, my stomach turned sour. And then I was told, you must prophesy again about many peoples, nations, languages, and kings. Revelation chapter 10. Wow. (laughs) What's going on here, huh? Well, well, first of all, let me just say, I mean, if I were in charge of that angel, you know, that, that mighty angel... That mighty angel who is another mighty angel, okay? Meaning this is the second one. There's another one. I mean, if, if I were in charge of that angel, <laughs> I'd have him doing a whole lot more than just showing up and playing postal carrier by giving the apostle John a snack to eat. That's what I would do if I were in charge, if anybody wonders. What, well, what, is, what, what is going on here? What is all this about? Well, well, if you recall, the book of Revelation was written to seven house churches. House churches. Uh, what were they? 20, 50, 80 in size? I, I don't know how large. They existed in Western Asia Minor, what is now Western Turkey. We meet these seven churches early on in the book of Revelation. And if you recall, these Christians in these churches... There had been a a little bit of persecution going on, but they were about to enter a season, and by season I mean an entire century of persecution and suffering, and it's going to get a whole lot worse. If you recall, they were going to be threatened with physical suffering. They were going to be socially ostracized. If you recall, they were going to be facing both religious and racial discrimination. Religious discrimination because 
they refused to enter the temple that was dedicated to Caesar and even, even just going through the motions of burning incense to Caesar, they refused to do it. And many of them would pay for it with their lives. And so they would be discriminated against because they're, because they're Christians. But also they would experience racial persecution because many of these Christians were of Hebrew ethnic ethnicity and uh, they lived in a they were a minority race and so they experienced both you see and it's hard and so that's why by the time we get to revelation chapter 10 we're at the 20 mile mark the 20 now and here's the deal here's the deal we've been at the 20 mile mark since the resurrection of jesus christ For the last 2,000 years since the resurrection of Jesus Christ, our world has experienced seasons and decades and centuries of economic oppression and oppression from warfare, oppression from the environment. There's been both. There's been both preaching and persecution. Preaching, sharing Christ, and suffering. In the the past 150 years, the evangelization of the world has been unprecedented, more preaching done in the last 150 years than the previous 1850 years combined but then also more persecution in the last 150 years than the previous 1850 years behind there's been both preaching and persecution it's going on sharing christ and suffering both are happening and both happen so that god will get our attention The rain falls on the just and the unjust. Both Christians and non-Christians perished in the Twin Towers. And here, at the end of the first century, the Apostle John, himself in his mid-80s now, it's mid-80s, it's sometime sometime around the year AD 95, and John is an old man, and he is is in his old age He's suffering exile for the gospel. He's exiled on the island of Patmos. He can't get to these seven churches. He loves these believers. He can't get to them. And he's received this revelation, this prophecy. And so so after these judgments are symbolically described as sealed judgments, you know, the seal, the blobs of wax against the scroll. After the seal judgments and the trumpet judgments are described and it's They're the same, these different word pictures are describing the same persecution. And so after this happens, this this mighty angel shows up. I mean, he's coming out of the bullpen. He's been given the nod. He's going to step on the mound. Help is on the way. He's a huge guy. Everything about him reeks of power and might. I mean, look, he's robed in a cloud. His face is like the sun fiery legs. It's obvious from the description here that this angel is a messenger, a representative of Jesus Christ himself because the description here of this angel in Revelation 10 is similar to the description of Jesus in Revelation chapter 1. Jesus is the lion of Judah. When this angel roars, he roars like a lion. And look, when we hear his roar, another set of sevens show up. Did you get that? When he roared, the seven thunder, seven seals in chapter 6, seven trumpets in chapters 8 and 9, and now seven thunders. And John's, 
he's got his pen in hand and he's, you know, he's licking the tip. He's ready to write it down. And just when he's about to write it down, a voice from heaven says, don't write that down. That's off the record. Huh? Isn't that what we said in verse four? Seal up what the seven thunders have said and do not write it down. Why? I mean, come on. Come on. See, 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 we're used to the Freedom of Information Act. And I want to know. We're, 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 that's what, I'm an American. We're used to that freedom. Let's, let's go. We're, we're not used to Deuteronomy 29, 29, huh? Deuteronomy 29, 29 says, The secret things belong to the Lord our God. The fact is, God has, and this is the only part of the, John's revelation that, he's, that we don't know. But I have to know. Well, too bad. God's not revealed everything. And he doesn't have to tell. Well, then why bring it up in the first place? Because he's God and I'm not. That's why. Okay? There's a lot we don't know. There's a lot. We, we don't know when Christ will return to earth. We don't. we don't. We don't know what Jesus wrote on the ground in John chapter 8. Do we? We don't know that. And we don't know the content of the seven scroll, uh, the seven thunders. We don't. That said, we can infer that by seven thunders there were more that these describe more judgments, right? Seven seals, seven trumpets, seven thunders, seven later on we'll see seven bowls, okay? All of these different cycles, describe, word pictures describing the same reality. huh? And we can infer that the reason that there's not going to be a thunders cycle is because it won't do any good. Remember those unbelievers? Remember those enemies that we read about in Revelation chapter 9 verse 20? Who refuse to turn to God even after the seals and the trumpets? They're certainly not going to do so when the thunder rolls. No, no. We don't know the content of the thunders, but we do know the content of the scroll. Let's focus on that. Because it's an open scroll. Did you see that? It's an open scroll. This big, huge, mighty angel. All right? This big, huge, mighty angel's got this little scroll in his hand. Which kind of brings me back to that issue that I have. That instead of flexing his big, mighty arm, he offers up, a little scroll. Thank you. Great. That's wonderful. But hey, what about all this evil? What about all this junk that's going on? You know, what about Satan? What about this beast? What about the suffering? Why doesn't this angel just flex his big, mighty muscle and then just make it all go away and just hurl the toxicity and the junk and the rubbish of this world out? I mean, he can do that. And, and he's another mighty angel. Well, why couldn't the first angel do the job? Come on, why didn't he just stop Osama bin Laden dead? Stop his heart. Huh? Why not? Why, why doesn't he stop the senseless killings like the one in Binghamton, New York this weekend where a gunman, he put his car up against the back door to block it so the people could not get out. 14 dead. He shows up to give John a postcard and says, here, eat. I can think of much more efficient use of an angel than that. 
You know, on Palm Sunday, Jesus rode into Jerusalem. And the crowds converged. The crowds converged both in the city and out of the city. And they converged together. They shouted, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the king of Israel. Now that's more like it. That's might. That's my style. Oh, yeah. Jesus is in. The Romans are out. The kingdom has come. Let's just clean up God, huh? That's mighty. And I like that. This, this is mighty? Please. Or is it? Or is it? Am I the only one who wants an angel to show up and just fix things? Am I the only one? Am I the, am I the only one who just wants an angel to show up and just take us out of our suffering situation? And yet God says to the Apostle John, no, John, I have you right where I want you. And I want you to know there's more muscle in that little open scroll than there is in the mighty angel's biceps. Oh, yeah. Because you see, because, because what's in the content of the scroll, the content of the scroll contains the message of the gospel. And God says, John, I want this message absorbed in your life and lived out of your life Hey, buddy, John, you're not done, but I'm in my 80s. It doesn't matter. But I've written a gospel in three letters, and I'm working on this revelation here. It's most of the New Testament. Come on, give me a break. No break. No retirement. No AARP in heaven. There's none of that. There's none of that. I, I once spoke with someone I once spoke with someone who was in their 90s who was uh, thinking about becoming a member of this church and I thought to myself, hurry. (laughs) They said, how can I serve? I said, can you pray? Can you pray? You see, you see, from our point of view, we see resources of heaven and we want to believe that all it takes is angelic biceps to fix things. And from God's point of view, the power is not in the angel's biceps. The power is in the little scroll's message because the scroll contains the gospel. And that's why the Apostle Paul said in Romans chapter 1, verse 17 and 18, that uh, the, the, the gospel is the power of God for the salvation for everyone who believes, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. Because in the gospel, a righteousness from God has been revealed. A righteousness from God. So consume this, John. See, see so, so, so like the prophet Ezekiel in Ezekiel chapters two and three, you gotta know your Old Testament to understand what's happening here. And Like the prophet Ezekiel in the Old Testament, book of Ezekiel, chapters 2 and 3, John takes the scroll. And like the prophet Ezekiel, John consumes the scroll. And like the prophet Ezekiel, the scroll's honey-sweet taste takes us to Psalm 19, verse 10. The commands of the Lord, they are sweeter than honey, than honey from the comb. And like Ezekiel, God commissioned 
this man to prophesy to the nation of Israel, God has commissioned John to prophesy to the nations, to the peoples, to the kings, you see. Ezekiel is local. John's going global. So what do you think? Angel's biceps or the scroll's message? God says, hey, John, there's work to do, and you're not done yet. But before you do the work of God, God's work needs to infect your life. It needs to happen in you because you can't share what you don't have. See, and that's the gospel. And that's why I like the story of uh, that father and son, Dick and Ricky Hoyt, who have run together in more than 800 Ironman competition races. That's swimming and biking and running. But the son, Ricky, he was born with cerebral palsy. And that means for him to be in the race, he's got to be pulled and pushed and carried by his father. And church, that's the power of the scroll. That's the power of Christianity. Christianity is not a marathon where I huff and I puff and I make it to the end and then I get heaven. No, no, no. Christianity is the Father's love expressed through His Son, Jesus Christ, who pulls and pushes and carries me. It's His strength and my job is to trust Him and love Him. Grace costs me nothing it costs jesus everything that's what makes it so sweet the sweetness of god's grace in my mouth came because of the bitterness of christ on the cross we get the sweet he gets the bitter And that's how the race is run. And that's how the race is done. And that's a race I want. What about you? Did you notice in Revelation chapter 10 when John was told to take and eat the scroll, it it doesn't, the, the voice did not tell John, take and eat the scroll, it'll be sweet in your mouth, and then it will be sour in your stomach. That's not what the voice said. The voice said, take and eat the scroll. It will turn your stomach sour. He talked about the sourness first, the bitterness first, and it'll be sweet in your mouth, you know. Isn't that interesting? See, Christianity, Christianity's up front. (laughs) There's... There's, there's really not this, you know, ethereal you know, pie in the sky. Everything's just going to be all well. I mean, you know what? Everything is going to be all right finally, but you may get crucified on Friday. See? The bitterness is acknowledged. And I, I think that just validates the whole truth of biblical Christianity. That God's up front, you know? God is totally up front. And we have talked about the sweetness of that scroll in 
Revelation chapter 10. And now we're going to read about the bitterness of that scroll in Revelation chapter 11. That's really what this chapter is about. This chapter, this chapter is about Christians who have tasted the sweetness of the gospel so much in their lives that they are willing to endure the bitterness of persecution, even to the point of death. That's what this is about. The gospel has entered their lives so sweetly. Christ has transformed them that they are then willing to endure the bitterness of persecution. Jesus warned his followers of this in John chapter 15, verse 20. Remember the words I spoke to you, no servant is greater than his master. And then he says this, if they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. If they obeyed my teaching, they will obey yours also. See, there's preaching and there's evangelizing and people are coming to Christ. They 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 will become a part of God's family just like they followed. But then there are also those who persecuted Christ and so his people are persecuted. And it's important that we understand that that's the big picture of Revelation chapter 11. If they persecuted me, they'll persecute you. Just, I want you to think about that as we read these verses in Revelation chapter 11, verses 1 through 13. They are, there's a lot of symbolism in here and a lot of figures, and we're going to try to unpack some of these to try to get our minds around what John is telling us and what he saw and what he experienced. But I, want you to, I just want you to lock on to the truth. If they persecuted me, they'll persecuted you. Here we go. John says, I was given a reed like a measuring rod and was told, go and measure the temple of God and the altar and count the worshipers there. But exclude the outer court. Do not measure it because it has been given to the Gentiles. They will trample on the holy city for 42 months and I will give power to my two witnesses and they will prophesy for 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. If anyone tries to harm them, fire comes out from their mouths and devours their enemies. This is how anyone who wants to harm them must die. These men have power to shut up the sky so that it will not rain during the time they are prophesying, and they have power to turn the waters into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they want. It kind of reminds you of Moses and Elijah in the Old Testament. Remember, you got to know your Old Testament to understand what's happening here. Now, when they have finished their testimony, the beast that comes up from the abyss will attack them and overpower and kill them. Their bodies will lie in the street of the great city, which is figuratively called Sodom and Egypt, where also their Lord was crucified. For three and a half days, men from every people, tribe, language, and nation will gaze on their bodies and refuse them burial. The inhabitants of the earth will gloat over them and will celebrate by sending each other gifts because these two prophets had tormented those who live on the earth. 
But after the three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them, and they stood on their feet, and terror struck those who saw them. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud while their enemies looked on. At that very hour, there was a severe earthquake, and a tenth of the city collapsed. 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake, and the survivors were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. What's all of this about? Huh? Well, it's about the bitterness of persecution. That's what it's about. It's about what Jesus said in John fifteen twenty. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. These verses are saturated with Old Testament images. Remember, the key to understanding Revelation is the Old Testament, not CNN. So there are some images here, though, and I, I think it would be good to unpack some of these images just to kind of connect with them, and I've provided some supplemental reading for you in our sermon outlines, which if we run out, we have them online. But when John talks about the temple in verses 1 and 2, he's talking about the people of God. He's talking about the church. He's talking about the church that's been in existence since the resurrection of Christ until his second coming. That's what he's talking about. And and the inner court represents those Christians who are not persecuted. The outer court represents that part of the church which has been persecuted, trampled on, trampled on, you see. And then you have these figures, 42 months and 1260 days and three and a half years. Sometimes it's inserted as three and a half days. You see that? These numbers all symbolize a period of trials and struggles and tribulation and persecutions for believers, for the church, between the time of Christ's resurrection and the time of Christ's second coming. I'm saying that these numbers, 42, 1260, they all describe the same thing. But why these numbers, you say? Well, why, why those numbers? Huh? Well, again, you've got to be Jewish to, to appreciate and understand this. You've got to be versed in Hebrew history to appreciate it. Because sometimes numbers can trigger a, a, a memory of history and even to the point of memor, uh, uh, a memory that is connected with an emotion. For instance, here's, let me throw out some numbers at you. How about the, these numbers? Four score and seven years ago. What is that? What? Gettysburg Address, Abraham Lincoln, our Civil War, all right? That, that, that cataclysmic period in our nation's history where before the Civil War, it was the United States are. After the Civil War, the United States is, you see? Four score and seven years ago. A lot of, lot, there's a lot packed into that, huh? What about this? Yesterday, December 7th, 1941, a day which will live in infamy. What's that? Pearl Harbor, you got that connection there, don't you? There, and there's a, an emotional connection there, you see. Or what about this? Where were you on 9-11? 9-11. See, we get that. We get that. 
And so what I'm saying is these numbers and dates, they trigger memories. They trigger a history. And these numbers in Revelation chapter 11, well, they show up in the Old Testament. They show up with the prophet Daniel in Daniel 7.25. And Daniel describes it as time, times, and a half a time. Huh? Time, one year, times two, and a half a time. A half, three and a half. This, and, and Daniel talks about this. And this refers to the three and a half year villainous persecution of the Jewish people by the Syrian tyrant Antiochus Epiphanes. Antiochus Epiphanes outlawed Judaism in the Holy Land. And he went so far as to sacrifice pigs on the altar of the temple. He so profaned it. And, and this occurred in the years 167 to 164 B.C. And the prophet Daniel calls this the abomination that causes desolation. And Antiochus Epiphanes was overthrown by the Hebrew patriot Judas Maccabeus. And if you have friends who are Jewish in their heritage and you ask them about the Maccabean revolt, they'll tell you. Oh, they'll tell you. And that was about a three and a half year period, you see. So these numbers represent a bitter but limited, because it was three and a half years. It was limited. A bitter but limited period of persecution. And so John takes that image and he applies it to the church. This limited but bitter persecution that's going to exist between the time of Christ's ascension to the time of his second coming. You say, how can that be limited if it's 2,000 years? Uh, Peter reminds us, 1,000 years is like a day to the Lord, you know. It's his timetable, not ours. John uses these rich Hebrew metaphors to describe the bitterness of persecution. And so in verses 3 and 4, we see two witnesses, two olive trees, two lampstands, which is all the same. It's different metaphors describing the same thing, which is the evangelizing and gospelizing of the church. And notice the number two. Why two? Again, you've got to go back to your Old Testament. Deuteronomy chapter 19.15 has established two as the minimum requirement for valid legal testimony, you see? And these images of olive trees and lampstands come from the Old Testament prophet Zechariah. And Zechariah declared that God would give his people strength to do what they needed to do in spite of resistance. So when, when John's audience first saw images of, of these olive trees, lampstands, they're, they're filled with hope because the message is God's people will be opposed, but with God's strength, God's people will overcome. And, and the opposition comes in verses 7 through 10, you see? And the opposition is described as a great city, this great city. And it's, notice it's referred to by several names, Sodom, uh, even the nation of Egypt in the time of the Exodus with the plagues and Pharaoh. That's described as, a, even the whole nation is described figuratively as a city. And even the city of Jerusalem is described. What is this great city? This, this great city is not like how Chicago is trying to be a great city to get the Olympics. No, no, no. It's called great because it sets itself up against God. 
It calls itself great because it prefers self-sufficiency in place of dependence, achievement in place of repentance, a, lamb, a, a beast instead of a lamb, murder instead of faith. And for a time, the great city appears to be in control. Did not Jesus' enemies appear to be in control when he was crucified? And so the church is persecuted. Martyrs are savagely put to death while the enemies of Christ gloat over their dead bodies. In fact, they even throw a party and then pass out party gifts. But one day, one day, Jesus will return. At the seventh trumpet, there's that mighty angel again, and there will be no more delay, and the great city will fall, and the saints will rise. The saints will rise. And verse 13 tells about the cataclysmic fall of this seemingly impenetrable city. A tenth of the city, or 7,000, fell. You, 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 again, John's audience knew that the average city in their day was about 70,000. And so to have a city with one-tenth just dissolve, that, that's cataclysmic, you see. And these enemies, these unbelievers will one day, notice it says that the survivors were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. Now, that doesn't mean they were converted. It means that they were it's, it, that means forced homage, just like what Paul talks about in Philippians chapter 2. Oh, yes. But God gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. Under the earth. That's forced homage. And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The, yes, there will be then you know what? There's going to be some of the church that will experience being trampled on in bitter persecution leading up to martyrdom. It's happening today. It's happening today. But Jesus is in charge. See, that's why we've got to go back to that mighty angel. See that angel? See? That mighty angel, that big angel with big feet. No matter what happens to God's people, God is still in control. And that, that fiery leg on land and that fiery leg on the sea, that is a picture of total sovereignty. And that's important to know ahead of time, especially when we read later on in Revelation about a beast coming out of the land and a beast coming out of the sea. And what John wants to remind us is that nothing comes out of the land or the sea that is not under the authority of Jesus Christ. Is there a beast in your life? Is there? Failing health, destructive habits, toxic work. You say, why doesn't God take it away? Why doesn't that angel show up and come out of the dugout and just fix things? For the same reason that that angel showed up to bear a scroll instead of bearing his arm. So that God's power would be made known through your weakness. That's why. And that's why the Apostle Paul would say in 2 Corinthians 12, 10, that is why for Christ's sake I delight in weaknesses. He's, he's not a masochist. He just knows. God, it's about God, not him. 
For Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses and insults and hardships and persecutions and difficulties. For when I am weak, I am strong. Paul says, don't pity me. No, no. I delight in this because, and it doesn't mean it doesn't hurt either. It just means that I have a joy because I want, I want to make much of God. You know, last week I told you about a pastor named Richard Wormbrand who uh, was persecuted and jailed in communist Europe. And he wrote this incredible bestseller. You can get it for free if you get online. It's the Voice of the Martyrs uh, website. One of you sent me an email and said that you told me that uh, you told me that uh, years ago you have actually heard Richard Wormbrand speak, and uh, you saw him in person. And you were completely absorbed by his story. And then this person talked about how, in the middle of Wormbrand's presentation, a woman in the audience said to him, uh, "Sir, I don't envy your persecution." And Richard Wormbrand thought for a moment and then replied, "Listen to this." He said, "Well." I don't envy your persecution either, the persecution of an easy life. You see, 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 we tend to think that persecuted Christians are whiners. No, they've got a joy, and they have a peace in their heart. See, See, for them, life is simple. It's not easy, but it's simple because it's all about Jesus. That just kind of cuts through everything, doesn't it? And that's why I think Revelation chapter 11 here, what we've read, can be summarized by another verse in Revelation. And it's a verse I want you to remember. In fact, you can even put it in the margin of your Bible of Revelation chapter 11. It's this verse right here, Revelation chapter 12, verse 11. They overcame him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. They did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. I need that verse. They didn't love their lives so much as to shrink from death. They didn't love their life. How much do you love your life? How much do you love your life? Here's what I think, and I could be wrong, but we're probably not going to be called to die for our faith. But we can live for it, and we can refuse to shrink back from it. And what does that look like? I mean, what's that look like when we leave this room here? And maybe it looks like any one of these questions. Uh, Is there someone we can invite next week for Easter services? Is there? What about that difficult conversation that you know you need to have? You can refuse to shrink back from that. You know, are are we making the world a sweeter place for those who aren't believers? We can refuse to shrink back from that. Are we adding to someone's day or taking away someone's day? We can refuse to shrink back from that. Have you smiled at someone today? We can refuse to shrink back from that. How can you love your neighbor next door? I mean, when you get home here in just a few moments, how? We can refuse to shrink back. Do you know Jesus? Do you you want others to know Jesus? Well, listen, a good place to start would be to make someone who doesn't know Jesus happy they know you. That's what I'm talking about.